It's time for Real Ag Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Radio and realagriculture.com is your home for insight and analysis of the issues that are impacting your farm business. Let's get real and get connected with Real Ag Radio. Hello and welcome to Real Ag Radio. I am your host on this Agronomic Monday, Lindsay Smith. It is my great pleasure to be hosting today's show and hosting the show for the entire week. So yes, I will be here for Tuesdays with Lindsay as per usual. And yes, I'll be on the issues panel on Friday, but I am going to be your host today, tomorrow, and every day this week. And I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, pack show today. I've got Brianne Tideman of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. She's going to join me to talk about wild oats. And once you know you have herbicide-resistant wild oat, what do you do? We've got a plan of attack for that. Uh, we've got Calvin Hepner is going to pop in here for a discussion with Ken Brown. Livingston about Canada fleabane and it moving into Manitoba. And then, of course, Peter Weepeat Johnson is back. Yes, he's back from vacay. And uh, we're going to tackle the top agronomic issues of the week. So, as always, we love your feedback, one 776 6147 or you can find us across social media at Real Agriculture, or head on over to realagriculture.com, bookmark that site, come back often, we update it all the time. All right, let's take a break, and I'll be back with Brianne Tideman right after this. At the 2023 Canadian Beef Industry Conference, Real Ag Radio did a live broadcast in front of the audience, and we focused on managing your farm business through adversity. We're talking right now to Todd Miller. He is CEO of Tech Canada. Todd, I want to hit on decision-making. What are some suggestions you have in terms of making good decisions during very stressful times? The pre-existing solution to all problems lies within the questions you ask. So in essence, if you can find yourself in a room with like-minded individuals, uh, regardless of industry, the process to follow is to really say, how do I do this? And state that very, very clearly. Give a little bit of background and state why it's important. Make sure that everyone has a vested interest in this to what you're trying to accomplish and start probing each other and really asking really deep questions. And all of a sudden, an answer prevails. The pre-existing solution to all problems lies within the questions you ask. Introducing the all-new Zerion 12 Series Tractor by Kloss. Redesigned from the ground up to redefine the high-capacity four-wheel drive market with 653 max horsepower, industry-leading hydraulic flow, a silky smooth CVT, a powerful TerraTrack undercarriage, and a quiet, comfortable cab with 20% more legroom. More than just power. The all-new Zerion by Kloss. Welcome back to Real Egg Radio. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and joining me now is Brianne Tideman. She's a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada out of Alberta. Brianne, welcome here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So if anyone follows along with your work, they will know that you are particularly passionate about weed science. And Yes, I am a self-proclaimed weed nerd. Yes, that's right. Yes. And love to find new <laughs> and exciting ways to kill said weeds, So, which I think is just great. And that's what we're going to talk about today. 
is not just weeds in general, but specifically, let's, let's say I am a farmer who suspected, let's use wild oats as the example today, suspected resistance in my wild oat population. I have confirmed said wild oats are resistant. Now what? That's the question I want to ask. So now what with wild oats? Okay, so I think the first thing is understanding what those resistance results really mean. So what I mean by that is is you get res- your results back and you know you've got, say, high resistance to the FOPs and intermediate resistance to the DIMs and DANs and some to the group twos or, or what have you. My question to producers is often, where did you sample that from? Did you have a patch of wild oats that you were worried about or was there wild oats across your entire field? Because that changes how you might manage things. Because if if in a small patch in your field, you've got really high levels of resistance, but your herbicides were working elsewhere in the field, maybe we need to focus on some patch management strategies and be conscious of, of the herbicides and the, the herbicide rotation we're using in the rest of the field, of course, too, because you've clearly selected for resistance. But can we employ some patch management strategies or is this your entire field and now it's like a remediation of the field type game, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're two different strategies that, that start getting needed in mm-hmm. a sense. Do you have a sense of like both occur? Is one more common than the other or do we not know that? Um, the resistance will start as a patch. Mm, okay. If we've denied the resistance, then we will have spread that patch to become more of our whole field. But resistance typically is initiated in a patch. Um, so it depends how early you catch it in sort of that evolution timeline and how many times you've gone through with your, your cedar and your combine to sort of spread it across the field. That's right. We do. So yeah. It, th- it depends a little bit. I think we can all envision those wild oat patches. They do like to sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and the key here, and yeah. I'm not, I don't want to make light of this, but let's face it. Some of these things do sneak up on us, right? And maybe that's a, uh, conditions weren't ideal when I sprayed, uh, you know, it's only a couple escapes, yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. Like there's all sorts of reasons why a resistant patch might spread or might become an issue on a greater field. So I, I don't want to make light of that, but I, I, I do think there's a part of where, you know, if weeds aren't dying or you didn't get as great control, we do need to stop and ask that question. Like, maybe there's a reason why, especially with wild oats. Yeah. Right. So, so um, and yeah, go ahead. There's always that assumption of, of, of it's a sprayer mess. Right. Well, is it? Mm. Is, is it just a single weed that escaped? Is it just the wild oat that escaped that you've got a sprayer mess on? Or is it an actual weed community there? Is there is there other weeds there as well? If it's a whole weed community in a little patch, well, then, yeah, maybe it was a sprayer mess. But if you've only got a single weed that escaped it there, I'd maybe be looking a little bit closer just, just to confirm. And if you do the resistance test and you don't have resistance, fantastic. You're off to the races. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't hurt to check. Yep. Now, just quickly with wild oats, you would be collecting seed to send in to do a resistance check? Yes. So um, Clark Brenzel from SAS Ministry of Ag actually has had the best tip that I've seen for if you want to collect uh, wild oat seeds for resistance testing when they're relatively mature, so those stalks are essentially brown, you're starting to see some of those seeds fall off. If you take an insect sweep net Mm -hmm. and sweep it through the wild oat seed heads, you get a really nice, clean wild oat seed sample. All right. And you're then doing it by hand. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, And we all envision those, you know, panicles creeping above the crop canopy and how irritated we all are by them. Okay. So that brings us to 
So let's maybe break it down then. Let's talk patch management first. Let's say you have sent for testing. You do know that a particular patch that you've tested is resistant to perhaps one or more. What does patch management look like? For me, number one would be let's stop those from going to seed next year. So you're going to throw pretty much everything you got at that patch. So you might be looking at alternative herbicides. You might be looking at layering herbicides. I would up your seeding rate in that patch or even just swing through a second time with the seeder if you know where the patch is, which a lot of guys will say, well, I don't have it mapped. And I go, can you point me to where your patch is in the field? And it's like, well, yeah, it's right over there. Mm-hmm. You, you know where your patches are. You know, the, the farmers are fantastic for knowing where their patches are. Um, so swing the seeder through one more time. It might throw off your tram lines or, or that kind of thing, but swing the cedar through. That extra crop competition is, can be really, really important. Um, if they get out of hand again next year, I would be looking at cutting off those seed heads. I'd be looking at mowing down that area, taking that one little area. Do you have a neighbor that needs a bale? Don't let those wild oats go to seed and don't spread those seeds with the combine. So So one of our best broadcast seeders for weed seeds is the combine. So if you know you have a resistant patch and you drive that combine through there, you are 100% you are spreading those seeds. Mm -hmm. That is what you are doing. Mm -hmm. And then it just makes it more of a problem. Is this, is wild oats one of the weeds, taking it another way, if you've got, say, you know, across the whole field, is this where a seed destructor type application might be useful or do they not wild oats are not going to be your number one weed to target with Mm. the seed destructor technology because they don't keep a lot of their seeds right they they tend to drop a lot of their seeds before you go in to actually harvest the crop um which then means you can't actually control them with the seed destructor so i see the seed destructors for wild oats being really helpful at keeping a patch a patch so you have some that you weren't able to control during the growing season, then you can take your combine through because that seed destructor technology is going to help prevent you from spreading them. If you don't have that seed destruction technology or you're not utilizing it for other weed species, then that's where I'd I'd be hesitating to take my combine through a patch that I know is resistant and that I'm going to have trouble managing across my field. Now, when you talk about herbicide layering, and Mm -hmm. and are we talking about perhaps switching up even not just modes of action, but, you know, like, are we talking about things that have residual or soil applied versus foliar? Like, how complex do we need to get? So with wild oats, there's not a lot of herbicide options. That's been always one of the challenges with wild oats. You've essentially got your group ones and twos in crop. You've got Roundup and glyphosate-resistant crops, um, and that's kind of it for selective in crops. There's, there's not a lot. Um, there are newer products. There's some group 14s. There's some group 15s that may not control wild oats. Some of them are labeled for suppression. Some of them are labeled for control. But what I'm trying to communicate to some of the farmers is that resistance really truly is a numbers game. The more plants that you're spraying in your in-crop, the more likely you are to find that one that's resistant. Mm -hmm. So by putting a residual product down, even if you only get suppression, suppression is is sort of, we think about 60% control. 
But if you knocked, say, 60 out of 100 plants out of there, now your in-crop's only going on to 40 plants instead of 100 plants. You're less likely to find those resistant biotypes. It helps, even if it's just suppression. Mm -hmm. And if you also layer that with, say, upping the seeding rate, you may have only had 80 plants to start with, let's say, or... Exactly. Right, those are things. I know... Yeah. um, Eric Johnson at the University of Saskatchewan had had done some work whereby increasing the seeding rate and including a pre-herbicide, he was getting, you know, over 80% control up to 90% control before that in-crop herbicide even went down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It makes a huge difference on on the population that we're selecting with those in-crop products. Mm -hmm. And if your in-crop products aren't working, well, let's take 60 out of 100 of those out that you know, might be setting seed for next year too. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a little bit of a pushback. We're used to those in-crop herbicides that are really, really highly effective, 98% control kind of thing of what we hit. That doesn't mean suppression is bad. It means it's another step. It's another layer that can be built into that management tool. Now, some of the soil applieds do require moisture to be active. Mm-hmm. Typically, most of them require moisture to be active. That's something that's out of our hands. Um, you know, if, if fall applications are supported, that can be a little bit more consistent in terms of activity because we almost always have snow melt. We don't always have spring rain. So if those fall applications are supported and you have time, it's it's not a bad idea. It also spreads out your workload a little bit, which can be kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we can only control so much when, with, when it comes to Mother Nature. And, yeah, it stinks if you if you put the product down and you don't get any rain and it doesn't get active and you maybe don't get the activity you wanted. But if you do get the rain and you don't have the product down, you might be kicking yourself for not putting it there. Right. Because then it's almost like a double whammy the other way because now you've got moisture and now you're going to have good growing conditions, which means you're going to have a whole bunch of seeds germinate and, and you didn't have a product down. So potentially, yeah. Yeah. So looking at I mean, it, it's, it's one of those farming gambles right. that every farmer has to take. It's it's one of those flip the coin things. And yeah. some years, it's, yeah, it might be a waste of money, but some years, oh man, that might pay off. Right, exactly. So. Um, and if any of us could figure out how to make it rain outside of irrigation, we'd be bedillionaires. So there you go. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so quickly as we wrap up here, uh, the difference then... So patch management, you can get a little more specific. But if we're talking field scale, I'm going to imagine that upping your seeding rate is still helpful. But how does your management change if you are looking at field scale resistance? So, I mean, field scale resistance, yes, upping your seeding rate is helpful, obviously, in your cereals in particular, because it doesn't have quite the same seed costs as, say, canola does. Um, if you're growing a cereal, I recommend looking at barley over wheat. It's a little bit more competitive. So when when you're on a whole field scale, it may actually require a change in your rotation to get a handle on these things or to at least get them back under control. You might need to look at a winter cereal. You might need to look at silaging that field. And if you're not a mixed farmer, I get the, well, what the heck am I supposed to do with it? Well, find a neighbor who is that can use that mm-hmm. and and see if they'd be interested in it for a year. Like it's, it becomes, if that resistance, if it's to all of your herbicide types um, and it's across your whole field, your options are now limited on how you're going to control that. Mm-hmm. And it really comes down to 
probably taking some more extreme measures for a couple of years to get that population back under control and down to patches instead of an entire field. So, and I'm, I'm glad you say, you know, talk to a neighbor or whatever the case may be, because I think, I think sometimes this is a key part of this and I, I, in, in resistance management overall. So I think about, you know, here in Ontario, we've got an issue with corn on corn having an issue with, I I believe it's rootworm. Mm -hmm. That's the issue that realistically it rotation can be such a benefit, but it's rotation because of how that crop might be managed. So as you mentioned, a winter cereal is going to be growing early. So that's competition mm-hmm. or silaging means you're cutting it before it sets seeds. So you're, you're interrupting exactly. that cycle, right? So, and I, I, I think it's wild to think, well, it's sort of an extreme case of having to change a crop or silage instead of grain or whatever. And it, and it is, if you think about it from strictly a grain perspective, but just call your neighbor and <laughs> let's see if we can't yep. get some cooperation between someone who needs the feed um, and, and you benefit as well. So I'm really glad, you know, that that's part of it because we can use systems to, to sort of approach some of these problems. Well, I, I even know of, uh, of a producer that actually does a land swap with one of his neighbors. So he will take pasture. He will break pasture for his neighbor and put it into an annual crop. And he gets the benefits of sort of that freshly broken ground. And his neighbor will put some of his bad weedy fields into a perennial forage Mm -hmm. for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Because again, you, you're growing a perennial. You got that higher competition. You're cutting that perennial multiple times, often for for forage or grazing it, mm-hmm. which can help manage that weed. And then they swap back. And now that's extreme. You've got to have a really good relationship with that neighbor and a lot of trust between you. But if you've got a mixed neighbor that might need some feed, they might be willing to come in and silage it, even custom silage. I don't have the equipment. Well, there are custom silagers. Yep. Yeah. It's it's worth a shot because what else are you going to do? Yeah. If you keep growing, you know, cereals and canola in rotation for grain, that there's there's only so much we can do yeah. with with you know, in season crop competition. How how high can your seeding rate go? Is it high enough to really take over the wild oats? No, probably not. Probably not, no. Uh brilliant. I love it. And I love that there are examples of this happening and you're exactly right. Just ask. And relationships are important, so get an agreement in place. Yep. But I think I think it's a brilliant way to sort of mix things up a little. Biology will adapt, we know, but we can adapt too. So let's do it. All right, Brianne, this was absolutely fascinating. I'm pretty sure we could do a whole show on this, but we'll leave it to a segment for now. For now. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, and we'll do it again. All right, thank you so much for joining me on the show, Brianne. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we'll be back with more Real Life Radio right after this. Kosha sucks. Big time. F***ing hate it. Really gets in the way. Off. But not anymore. Get a head start on tough-to-kill weeds like Kosha this fall with Volterra Easy and Fierce Easy Soil Active Herbicide. Apply after harvest before freeze-up for up to eight weeks of extended control in pulses, soybeans, and wheat next spring. Volterra Easy, Fierce Easy for f***ing Kosha. Visit newfarm.ca forward slash kosher. Hi, I'm Bernard Tobin, host of the Soybean School on realagriculture.com. Throughout the year, on the Soybean School, we'll bring you timely agronomic video content from planting to harvest, from the latest agronomic research to the latest in production technology. Check out our massive video library on YouTube, realagriculture.com, or download the audio podcast versions wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Soybean School is brought to you by Pride Seeds, BASF, and Syngenta Canada. Did you know that Pioneer now has a full lineup of Enlist E3 soybeans? Take a look at Pioneer brand Enlist E3 soybeans for the highest yield potential and for the best agronomic package and herbicide trade options. From the lab to the field, Pioneer brand Enlist E3 soybeans are the best in beans, period. Ask your local Pioneer representative about Enlist E3 beans. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on this Agronomic Monday. I am Lindsay Smith, your host, and this segment is brought to you by Co-op. When it comes to the productivity and efficiency of your operation, every decision counts. One of those decisions is how you fuel your equipment. You need to be sure that it will run efficiently and without unnecessary downtime. Count on Co-op and your local Co-op fuel team to keep your equipment running smoothly with seasonally blended, high-quality fuels and premium lubricants with guaranteed performance. We are Western Canadian. We are Fueling Harvest. We are Co-op. All right. As promised in the open, I've got Calvin Hepner and Kim Brown-Livingston in uh, a recent Wheat School episode talking about herbicide-resistant Canada Fleabane making its way and taking a foothold in Manitoba. For Real Agriculture, I'm Kelvin Hepner at Crop Diagnostics School in Manitoba. And unfortunately, uh, we have uh, our next bad news story, <laughs> according to our, our guest. Kim Brown Livingston is the weed specialist with Manitoba Agriculture. And we, we kind of joke about it, Kim, but uh, Canada Fleabane is something that sh- we should have on our, our radar uh, or producers and agronomists should have on their radar. For sure. Thanks, Kelvin. Yeah, I've been worried about this one for a number of years. And, you know, I joke about it and I say this is our next bad news story. This is glyphosate resistant and resistant to several other chemistries um, in other places right south of our border in North Dakota, South Dakota as well. Um, you know, before the, the the really bad weeds like the water hemp and the palmer amaranth, this was probably their, one of their number one bad weeds. Um, in Ontario as well, lots of resistance to this, lots of uh, herbicide resistance. And in Manitoba, we really have not seen anything yet. We really haven't even seen much of this weed lately, but I want everybody to get really familiar with this. This is um, Canada fleabane. Um, down, you'll read about it. Some people call it um, horseweed or mare's tail. And so it'll start to flower very soon. We've got some little flower beds coming. It's usually quite upright like this, and it has um, little kind of skinny little leaves. It's kind of very, not not very showy at this point. It's not even really a big weed. But up here, we get a lot of little, little tiny uh, flowers coming. And they're like a dandelion type flower. So they've got the fluffy thing on the end. It's called a pappus and it's a tiny little seed. And when it sets seed, they can flow, they can get up in the, you know, atmosphere and they can float around on the wind and be deposited miles and miles and miles away. So we've really seen this one explode. It, it just seems to be everywhere. It's all through my plots here. It really, you know, just in the last couple of years, it's, we're seeing a lot of it. To my knowledge, none of this is glyphosate resistant. I have had um, a couple of farmers talk to me that were pretty sure that they had sprayed this with glyphosate and it didn't die. So we're keeping an eye on that for this year. So, you know, we've heard rumors that in the province, there are some populations of it that are glyphosate resistant. Uh, So, you know, we really, really have to watch that. But a lot of people aren't even familiar with this weed because it really hasn't even showed up very much until the last couple of years. It's always been around kind of on the edge of the ditch or the edge of the bush, you know, up next to the crop, but it never really moved into the crop much. But it is starting to move into the crop. I'm hearing reports of it being in some forage seed fields, you know, in the interlakes or the alfalfa seed fields, uh, the birdsfoot trefoil fields as well. This is a 
seed that actually can germinate right from the surface, a uh, soil surface. It doesn't need to be tilled in. It doesn't need to be buried at all. Um, so, you know, it works really well. Or it proliferates really well in zero-till situations and then obviously in perennial fields like our forage seed fields that are, you know, in production for, you know, three or four years before, uh, you know, before they're tilled under. So this is something I really want people to get familiar with. There's lots of pictures on the internet. It'll start to flower right about now. And we do need to watch. If we start to see herbicide failure on this, we need to know about that. And you need to be aware of it because this is a, a, a really big deal play everywhere else except here. So we're lucky so far, but I don't think that luck's going to hold. Okay. How detrimental is it to the actual crop or how competitive is it with, with crop uh, in, in those other areas? Obviously, there are lessons that we can learn from Ontario or, or the U.S. where it is an issue. Yeah, it's very competitive. It, it blankets, it basically covers the ground. It blankets the ground. It can be just a solid mass of this and it's big enough. I mean, it, right now it's not a huge weed, uh, but it's big enough and it can just look like you've solid seeded it. It looks like a carpet of it. So when you get a pop- these really, really high populations of this weed, you're taking moisture, you're taking nutrients, you know, um, it's they're re- it's really detrimental to crop yield and it's a really, you know, lots of seeds on it. And again, they fly all over the place. So it's capable of moving long distances and infecting a lot, a, a lot of area around you when you do start to have even just a few plants. Okay. Are there certain situations where you think it... Oh, you you mentioned some of the forage crops. Are there certain crop situations or, or scenarios, rotations where you expect it to show up first or where, where it is more of an issue? Um, basically, you know, it, it is a problem in some of our in some of our uh, cereal fields as well. And I know in Ontario and, and especially in their winter wheat fields as well. Now, we don't have a lot of winter wheat in Manitoba. Um, some places too that it may start to show up is kind of at the end of the season um, after, you know, after our crops off, especially if we do ha- um, are lucky and have an early harvest and our crops have been fairly advanced so far this year because of the heat and the dry conditions. And so if we do have an early harvest, it's something that I would be watching for um, post-harvest, the same as some of our other weeds as well. We do have to watch for them germinating post-harvest. So this can come up there as well because it can be a winter annual as well. So it's kind of something, it's got a bunch of different life cycles and um, uh, it's just something that it can, it's very opportunistic and it can come up. It, I get it doesn't look like much, but when it becomes glyphosate resistant and resistant to some other chemistries and it's really hard to kill, then it's a really big problem. Okay. Finally then, Kim, what do you recommend a grower does or an agronomist does if they find some and they suspected you? You mentioned a few growers have already talked to you after after spring and not seeing it die. I, I assume that's the recommendation if they find it this year. Mm-hmm. So right now in Manitoba, we don't have a quick test or a quick DNA test right now to tell whether it's resistant or not. So for right now, what we're trying, what you have to do with most weed seeds, if you suspect resistance, for most of the time you have to gather seed and then it can go to a lab and they grow it out and they basically spray it to see if it dies. So I would try to capture some seed off of it and, uh, you know, we need to do that and and try to get a handle on it and see. I think there are tests developed elsewhere. Um, I'm not, again, they haven't come to Manitoba yet, but we would, uh, trying to evaluate to see whether or not those will work in Manitoba and whether we can get some diagnostic tests that are very, you know, done, very quickly done in crop. And then we have an idea of what we're up against. Um, you know, and then of course, you know, if you know you do have this in the field and we do have some regrowth or some growing after harvest, then, you know, we can target our fall weed control programs accordingly. Um, but again, you have to know what you're up against. So I think the thing is with this, a lot of people don't even know what it is yet. A lot of farmers are not familiar with this weed at all. So even just to get familiar with it, again, it's not bad news yet, but I, I have a feeling that it's coming. And uh, I think it could be coming in the next year or so or the next few years. So just to know, be very familiar with this because a lot of farmers that I know really aren't familiar with this weed at all. They have other problems. Yeah, we yeah. have other weeds. Okay, so. um, and this one just isn't that much of a problem yet, but it, it could be at very, uh, very soon. 
All right, big thanks to Calvin and to Kim for joining me on the show today. We go now to a commercial break, and right after this, I'll be joined by Peter Weepy Johnson. Yes, he's back from vacay and ready to tackle the top agronomic issues of the week. Back after this. Does your end stabilizer contain an active ingredient load high enough to be agronomically effective? If not, it could be costing you time and money. If you're putting down a nitrogen stabilizer, put your trust in Coke Agronomic Services. Solutions like SuperU, Tribune, and Anvil. Each delivers high active ingredient concentrations that low-rate products just can't match. Compare how imitator products stack up to agronomically effective solutions at defendyourn.ca. When it comes to the productivity and efficiency of your operation, every decision counts. One of those decisions is how you fuel your equipment. You need to be sure that it will run efficiently and without unnecessary downtime. Count on Co-op and your local Co-op fuel team to keep your equipment running smoothly with seasonally blended high-quality fuels and premium lubricants with guaranteed performance. We are Western Canadian. We are fueling harvest. We are Co-op. Welcome back to Real Egg Radio here on this Agronomic Monday. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and this segment is brought to you by SuperU. Want true nitrogen protection? Skip imitator products for an agronomically effective solution like SuperU Premium Fertilizer from Coke Agronomic Services. SuperU protects against all three forms of loss and is proven to boost yield potential. See how others stack up at Defend Your N. Well, many of you were concerned, wondered where on earth is Peter Wheat, Pete Johnson, but have no fear, everyone. I have him back. Pete, welcome back. Thanks so much, Lindsay. And it's great to be back, man. Just going 90, trying to catch up now. But uh, we were in Portugal, the whole family. And what a great time that was. And just, I don't know, getting to know my grandkids better and the, the sons and daughters getting to reconnect. That was a wonderful time. So I apologize for not being around, but hey, family is important. Absolutely it is. And uh, for those who don't know, of course, part of your family, Pete, does live overseas. So you don't all get to get together all the time. So nice yeah, to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Half, is, half is in the UK, half is in Canada. So. Yeah. It's not yeah. as easy as just driving down the road for tea. So there you go. Um, but we are so glad to have you back. And it's a good thing, too, because there is a lot going on. I mean, yes, we're chugging towards harvest and sort of tail end of the decision-making process for a lot of things. But there's still plenty uh, to tackle and to keep an eye on. One of the things, let's start with uh, the wheat's off, we hope, and uh, maybe looking at some cover crops going in. But we have to talk about weed control, potentially, on this wheat stubble. Where are we at with that, Pete? Yeah, and so as I drive through the uh, countryside, Lindsay, and and I really want to hammer this home, it's such a dichotomy. Uh, You know, some people have tweeted out uh, polls, surveys, do you cover crop after your wheat stubble? And cover cropping is really important because it can build organic matter or you can use it for emergency forage if you need it. Although here in Ontario this year, boy, the hay supplies are, are just quite huge growers with third cut scratching their heads saying, if I don't cut it, Pete, 
Will it smother the alfalfa because it is, you know, knee high or halfway up to my waist and, and man, it's thick and heavy. So we don't necessarily need the emergency forage this year, but, but one of the challenges that I think, and we've, we've slipped the clutch on that in the past is that we, we let too many weeds go to seed after the wheat crop. And as I drive around, I see some people doing some, you know, pretty significant tillage. And they say to me, well, the tillage kills all the weeds. Well, that isn't always the case, Lindsay. As you and I both know, tillage can do a pretty good job on some weeds, but you have to do pretty significant tillage to actually kill all the weeds because those weeds will work their way around the, the cultivator teeth or whatever and and you just have to pay attention. Plus, some other growers, you know, run through the field with a shot of glyphosate. Well, that's a pretty simple way to stop most of the weeds from from going to seed. But then we get into glyphosate resistant flea bane. We're seeing more and more water hemp out there. We're seeing more and more glyphosate resistant ragweed. I'm pretty disappointed to see the glyphosate missing ragweed. So it's it's not a perfect panacea and every time we let those little weeds go to seed we build up the seed bank and in Peter Sikma's work that is the one thing his latest message is that if you prevent the weeds from going to seed then you can take a disaster like water hemp with I forget what the number was it was just a massive number of seeds per square meter Four years, they prevented that from setting seed, and they took, I don't know, a million seeds per square meter or 300,000, or I, the number escapes me, but it was, it was mind-boggling, and they pulled it back to the point where it was incredibly manageable. I don't know whether it was 10 or 20 or 100, but the, the reduction was very significant. So these little weeds and Grasses in particular, I often see the foxtail. We don't worry about foxtail too much. And then all of a sudden we have a foxtail problem as we move forward. Uh, just make sure that you're getting good weed control. If you have the red clover there, it's called MCPA, low volatile ester at half a liter per acre. You want to ramp that control up in the red clover. Use Buctral M and and. Uh, increase the MCPA, like add a little bit more MCPA to get that rate up to that half liter per acre. It'll sting the red clover, but it will prevent the flea bane from going to seed, the ragweed from going to seed. And, and you really have to be timely with that because now we're getting into the stage where some of those weeds, like they're, they're almost at the viable seed stage. So it, it's a real timing thing, but it has massive long-term implications. So now for those who, let's say you don't have red clover, and so you're going to go in with everybody's favorite oats or, or something like that. We are a little later than last year, that's for sure. Last year we certainly were, you know, the wheat crop came off in some cases late September or late July, early August. So we had this, we had a huge month of August to grow cover crop. For those who, who are going to put in a cover crop, you're saying... So let's say you don't have red clover. You're saying control those weeds before you get that cover crop in. Absolutely. So my own wheat stubble, Lindsay, we went through with a shot of glyphosate to take out the ragweed and the foxtail and all those other things. And dang it, we should have added some MCPA 
because there's flea bane. I, I didn't, we didn't see any flea bane at all in the wheat crop, but now when I walk that field, I'm finding little flea bane plants there. Oh, we should have added yeah. some MCPA to, to take them out, but uh, we, we may end up going in, you know, to take them out. We'll see, but I'm going to plant the oats now and get them growing. Uh, give them a, a, you know, the other thing I'm going to do when I plant the oats, we're going to broadcast the oats on. Uh, you can drill them in and save some seed, but I need to apply some phosphorus and potash. And so it's sort of an easy way to ch- get that job done and then figure out, to, you know, whether you need to incorporate that a little bit or, or just how you're going to get all that, that started to grow. We get enough rain. You don't need to do anything. It will grow on the surface, but it, it does work better if you incorporate it. Plus, incorporating the, the phosphorus is always a good deal. But yeah, it, mm-hmm. we just we stopped everything from going to seed so that the oats can now do their thing, and I don't have to worry about more seed set and and more weed problems into the future. All right, let's switch switch gears a little bit. Last week, uh, a Twitter discussion. A, a discussion in general on seed treatments of wheat. What was that all about? So I spoke at a meeting for the Quinty West Soil and Crop last Thursday morning. And at the same time, there was a, a bit of a discussion about seed treatments in wheat. And so we, we really got into that whole discussion at the Quinty West Soil and Crop meeting. It was a bunch of fun. There were some growers there. It's just an awesome discussion. But Mark tweeted out a picture of, of his yield where he planted untreated seed versus where he planted treated seed, and he actually got um, a significantly higher yield with untreated seed. And I'm kind of going, whoa, wait a minute. Like you, I, I forget the exact numbers, but it was something like 172 to 156. And I'm saying, ah, there's... Number one, you can't lose 16 bushels per acre or whatever that number was by treating seed. And and number two, what about quality? And the local mm-hmm. elevator operator, Amazing Pete, he jumped in immediately and said, we are seeing an increase, an uptick of the number of deliveries coming into our elevator that have bunt balls in them. Mm-hmm. Have you ever dealt with bunt balls before, Lindsay? I have not, but it is fun to say, not super cool to have. Let's be honest. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And they make the they make the wheat smell like rotten fish, and so it's a hundred percent rejection. And the problem with you can either have common bunt, and that's a seed borne disease, and seed treatments do a super job on that. So once you have a few bunt balls, even not on your own farm, what's really interesting about bunt balls is as you go through with the combine, the combine breaks those bunt balls open and they are just full of spores. It's a little bit like tar spot spores coming up from the U.S. And that's how we got tar spot in Ontario was this big spore cloud out of the U.S. Same thing with bunt balls, only a little bit more local. Your neighbor has bunt, he combines his wheat, yours isn't harvested yet. All those spores drift over and land on your wheat. Now you've got bunt in your wheat you can also get dwarf bunt in the snow belt area. That's even worse because it's soil borne. Common bunt isn't soil borne, doesn't survive in the soil, it survives on the seed. But really simple to, to solve it, just treat the seed. And it, it just is such a, a cheap insurance policy so that you don't end up 
with 100% of your wheat rejected. And the problem with the bunt balls is they're the same size as the wheat kernels. It's virtually impossible to, to take them out of the wheat. All you can with rotary screens and like if, if you really t- put a lot of effort into it or gravity tables, you can get them out, but you got to get all of them out. And every time you handle the wheat, you break more bunt balls, which makes it smell like rotten fish again. And not even the feed trade wants feed that smells like rotten fish. And we sure don't want that in the food trade. So a great discussion at the end of the day, seed treatments in wheat, winter wheat in Ontario, just because of the issues with bunt are, are, are almost a no brainer. And if you're using untreated seed, I think you're at high risk. By the way, when I push back at Mark on, wait a minute, how do you get this big yield difference where the, the untreated seed yields more than the treated seed? He said, oh, well, that was just the yield zones and all the headlands were treated seed and they yielded quite a bit less. And so that's why those those two bars looked quite a bit different in, in his tweet. And, and that, Lindsay, by the way, is not a fair plot comparison. Right. So th- so a few things. First of all, new word of the day, bunt balls. Second, that's why it's important that we look at good data and ask questions of data that maybe doesn't make sense because sometimes it's maybe not the full story is necessarily what we're getting. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yep. And, yeah. and the other thing I'm saying is treat the wheat seed because it, it's just a smart thing to do. So... Let's just stick with this for just a moment, and then we'll, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more of, of Wheat Pete. Um, is this where saving seed gets to be a problem? As far Is bunt one of the things we worry about when we keep seed back? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. And so if you, if you buy certified seed, it's inspected, and yeah. if it has bunt in it, it's refused, right? It's not a seed yeah. crop. Yeah, perfect. Uh, if you save your own seed, this is one of the issues. Yep. All right. Okay. With that, let's take a quick break. Uh, Pete, you're sticking around uh, for the last segment of the day. Uh, we'll be back with more Real Ag Radio right after this. Introducing the Arion 600 Series Tractor by Kloss, where versatility meets productivity head-on. Because you've got jobs to do. Mowing, tedding, raking, baling, loading, filling, tilling, cleaning, spreading, hauling, feeding. This is multi-purpose reimagined to do the work for you. It's more than just power. The Arion 600 Tractor gets it done. Boron is an essential micronutrient for plant growth. And without boron, your crops can't absorb the macronutrients they need for higher yields. Although borates occur naturally, boron deficiency is a common soil problem. Whether in direct soil application, through fertigation, or as a foliar spray, U.S. Borax has the right refined product for your crops. U.S. Borax products are specifically formulated to combine with other fertilizers, lowering your application costs. Learn more at borax.com egg. Welcome back to Real Ag Radio here on this Agronomic Monday. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and joining me now is Peter Wheat Pete Johnson. He's back for more. We're tackling the biggest agronomy issues of the week, and I'm so excited. Pete, 
Let's talk. We do have the Pro Farmer Tour happening this week, and I will put in a bit bit of a plug. We're hoping to have uh, some coverage of that on Friday's show, so stick around. But if you're following it online, um, do that, and then we're going to have some discussion later in the week. Uh, but, of course, this time of year for corn and soybeans, we're talking yield potential. Ontario, at least, I've got a few questions about this crop, but where are we sitting on yield potential? What is it going to take to get us to the finish line? So, Lindsay, yield, yield potential looks absolutely spectacular on corn and most soybeans. Now, i got to be careful on soybeans because we've had too much moisture in a nice bit of Ontario, and the corn crop, the, the too much moisture came mainly in July. That's when we had mm-hmm. the 10, 12, 14, 17 inches of rain in a month. Now, that pales in comparison to what they're getting in California and Nevada out of out of Hurricane Hillary right now. But nonetheless, it was way too much rain. And at that stage, the soybean crop, it's pretty small, so it wasn't using a lot of water. The corn crop, it was already big and pumping a third of an inch of water per day. So when you get too much rain, if the crop's using enough, it doesn't it doesn't affect it as much. So there's there's certainly some white mold, some disease in the the soybean crop. But what worries me a bit more in in many fields is I drive past and there's dead areas and excellent fields that never have dead areas, but there's also beans that still don't have that nice dark green color because the root system is still suffering from excess moisture. So on the bean front, I'm not too worried about maturity. Beans are more day-length sensitive than corn. Uh, they're they're not only day-length sensitive, but you know the chances of the soybean crop not maturing are pretty slim. The chances of a record yield in the good fields, I think we're going to have a record yield. I'm just not sure if we get there across the province because of this wet foot syndrome on corn. There's not many fields that were badly affected by too much moisture, just little portions here and there, maybe of the odd field. But a lot of corn is 10 foot tall. It's green from the top to the bottom. Like it just looks gorgeous. You do kernel counts, and we are getting kernel counts of, you know, 700, 750 kernels per cob. And if you multiply that times 30 or 31 or 32,000, cobs per acre, man, that could be 250, 270, maybe even 300 bushel per acre corn. And you're going, oh my gosh, what what are we going to do with all this corn? But then you come to maturity on the corn crop. And that's where I'm getting a lot of growers that are just a little bit antsy in terms of will it mature? Mm -hmm. So if you put that in perspective, Right, Lindsay? It was, it's a really weird year for corn because the corn silked four, five, even as much as seven days before the tassels came out. Now, that's 100% backwards to the way it's supposed to be. Okay, so can we, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm fascinated by what happened. Why? We don't know. What I can tell you is that if you go back to the old genetics, the tassels came out before the silks. And they could predict yields by how many days the tassels were out before the silks because the tassels come out, shed their pollen. If the silks weren't there, you didn't get pollination. They called that the tassel-silk interval. Mm -hmm. And the more days between, the more stress the corn was under, the lower the yield you got. 
So one of the methods that our breeders used to put in more stress tolerance was they narrowed up that tassel to silk interval. But, you know, it's become kind of common for the silks to come out with the tassel or maybe a day before the tassel. But this year, we had four-inch long silks before we had any tassel whatsoever. And that's just really bizarre. When we're looking at corn, a, a September 20th frost is not necessarily rare. It, it doesn't happen a lot, but it's not rare. Where, why do we think we're so far behind? In that we, we had lots of water, but we also, at least here, we had lots of heat. Are we looking at potentially some of the impact from that smoke that was there all of June or just because of all this rain, we've had so much cloud cover? Like what are we, what, what's the hypothesis here on why this corn is slow? So what's really interesting, Lindsay, is that from a, a crop heat unit calculation, most of the numbers that I've seen would say that we're just slightly behind normal. Uh, crop heat unit calculations would say maybe two to four days behind average and we're 10 days late on tassel and in the deep southwest you get down into Essex Kent uh, they actually don't think they're 10 days behind on tassel and that area wasn't as drought stressed remember June was incredibly dry Mm -hmm. that area wasn't as drought stressed as the rest of Ontario was through that time frame And so part of the thought process is that maybe that drought stress, the corn slowed down a bit, although the corn crop itself wasn't really drought stressed because it hadn't used much water. But when we look at solar radiation, we are in general terms behind average on solar radiation. And we just don't have really good research that I've been able to find in terms of the impact on solar radiation and crop development. But it really makes you wonder. There's mm-hmm. some there's some combination of factors that are making us later in maturity than we would expect we should be. Mm-hmm. So on this note, let's stick with corn for a bit. We have mentioned, of course, white molds. The window for controlling that's long past. Um, we are going to. I should put in a plug tonight on the Agronomists. So if you're on YouTube, you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, it goes live at 8 p.m. Eastern on the Real Agriculture account. Um, I'm the host. It's a very busy week for Lindsay. Let me tell you, Pete. Uh, but we are going to talk about. We've got. We've got uh, our guest tonight. We're going to talk about corn disease, specifically gibberella, but tar spot as well. Any indication on how we're doing with tar spot? Was a fungicide pass worthwhile? Do we have hints of this? Oh yeah, so I'm actually getting getting uh, Woody, uh, you know Woody Van Arkel, great Twitter guy and, and great friend, and he sent me a picture. He missed a corner of his field. Now he's he's down in Chatham Kent, and so he's in the area that has had more tar spot. Although Woody said this morning, you know Pete. I haven't seen that much tar spot in the past. Boy, the corner of the field that he missed with that fungicide application has just gotten hammered. And it, it's an excellent test plot or test strip that he missed that corner because it's telling him that, yeah, it was definitely worthwhile to spray that field with the fungicide. But when you move out of Elgin, Kent, uh, Essex, when you move up into, say, London and North Lindsay, 
we are not seeing tar spot at high levels yet. We are seeing, you know, the odd lesion. I'm starting to get reports of the odd lesion. I got to get out in cornfields myself since I got back. I just haven't had a chance to be in many cornfields, but that'll be this week's project. Uh, it takes four to five or maybe even under cooler temperatures, six weeks for those initial lesions to really become an epidemic. And so we're 20th of, of August, 21st of August today. You add six weeks onto that, we're at the end of September. So the chances further north of tar spot being a major hit on yield is probably reasonably low, but mm -hmm. we still have you know, gibberella. We haven't talked about gibberella, northern corn. I'm sure you will talk about that tonight. Yes, and if we you will. don't, Lindsay, we, Pete will be in the chat and he will and make he will sure make he asks no, those questions. I do very much want to because I was actually in, pre in preparing for tonight's show was watching some some of our corn school episodes from past years and 2018 bad gibberella year. We actually, I have a video with Albert Tenuta standing in the crop in like July saying, Hey, everything looks good. It was not good, everyone. Um, and so we are definitely going to be having that discussion about gibberella, about, uh, the, the Western mean cutworm impact, silk channel infection, all those things. So check it out tonight, 8 PM Eastern YouTube, Facebook. Twitter, you'll find us there. Uh, before we go, we are running out of time, but a quick heads up. Uh, Pete, you saw this, and I think this is just a really important point that that whenever we can uh, remind people of a safety issue, uh, a bit of an alert on silo gas. What do people need to know? Be aware of silo gas. It's a silent killer, and it happens under drought conditions because of the nitrates in the crop. It's kind of from 12 hours after you put that in the silo to about five days, something like that, a week, even as, maybe as much as 10 days. If you're not under drought conditions, it's, it's much less likely to happen. But boy, for our people, uh, listeners in Western Canada and in the drought-stricken areas of the U.S., if you're making silage, please, please, please be careful. We don't want anybody getting hurt. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Words of wisdom from Peter Wheat, Pete Johnson. Pete, that's all the time we got for today, but thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you in the chat tonight. Absolutely. Have a great week, Lindsay. All right. That does it for this Agronomic Monday here on Real Egg Radio on Rural Radio Channel 147. I will be back tomorrow for your regular Tuesdays with Lindsay. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye now.